As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Hey, everybody. Happy All-Star Week. The festivities underway in L.A. Of course, Dodger Stadium had the Midsummer Classic stolen away by COVID in 2020, but will be on full display for the 2022 All-Star Game. It's just the second time the old stadium has hosted the game. First time since 1980. It's going to be a lot of fun this week. Futures game kicked things off on Saturday. The American League beating the National League 6-4 in that one. Shea Langoliers, your MVP. This, of course is the mailbag edition of the Athletic Baseball Show. I'm Tim McMaster, along with Ken Rosenthal. We do it for you every week. Ken has just touched down in L.A. as we record this at 6.30 Eastern time on Sunday evening. Uh, Ken, the first thing, I, I know anybody that tuned in Saturday night wants to know the answer to this. How was walking across the GW Bridge barefoot? Well, Tim, full confession, I did not walk across the GW Bridge oh. barefoot. Now, let me explain the context. So Matt Carpenter was walking around the field barefoot before the Yankees-Red Sox game Saturday night. Actually, our stage manager, a guy named Handel, noticed it, pointed it out to me and said, hey, that's a little different. So I asked Matt, hey, what were you doing there? And he said, it's something called grounding, where when your feet are in touch with grass or dirt, there is a belief among some that it leads to reduced inflammation and I guess other benefits too. And Matt basically said, I don't know if that's true, but I'm trying it out. So when I talked about this on the broadcast, and I'm sure a lot of people didn't see it because they believe the score by then was 10 to one. I said, I don't know about John Smoltz and Jordan Davis, but I plan to go home to New Jersey and walk across the George Washington bridge barefoot because that's the inspiration that Carpenter has given me. And I would think so many fans, but I was telling a little white lie. Uh, it was good 10-1 content, though, for <laughs> yes. sure. Um, all right. Well, you know, once the All-Star game is over, it is a sprint to the trade deadline. And man, has the trade deadline gotten more interesting in the last couple of days. You broke the news on Saturday. Juan Soto is available after turning down a 15-year, $440 million offer from the Nationals. And I think you said on the broadcast also that you think there's a real good chance this happens. I do. 
because Tim, generally speaking, once these things get started, they're hard to stop. Now, it's possible the Nationals don't get an offer that they want and ultimately decide not to trade Juan Soto at this juncture. But as Briccaroli wrote on Sunday, they're going to trade him. It's inevitable now. And if it's not at this deadline, it's during the offseason or next deadline, it's going to happen, even though he has this year and two more years left. So I guess the first question is, why did Mike Rizzo say on a Washington, D.C. radio station that he was not going to trade Juan Soto? This was about June 1st or so. Rizzo is the Nationals general manager. And he said it at the time because negotiations were ongoing, and I assume he believed that the Nationals were going to get this done. But when they offered the 440 and it did not get done, then the organization shifted its thinking to basically, well, if we're not going to get them done at this number, what number exactly would it take? And is that number, obviously it's going to be higher, a good thing for our organization as we are for sale? Do we want to stick a new owner with this asset, which is an incredible asset, but if it's overpriced, it's less of an asset. So that's the thinking here. That is why they have pivoted. And I always say, Tim, and you've heard me, you're probably sick of me saying it, and I guess fans might be sick of me saying it too. Things happen at the deadline every year that make your head spin. Usually it's the deals themselves. This, though, because of the sudden change in the national stance, that made all of our heads spin. And there's a couple of points I want to make before we really get into the mailbag. One, I don't know that we should be surprised by this, given what has transpired. Given the fact that if you can sign Juan Soto, in your estimation, then it does make sense to at least entertain offer. Do your due diligence. It doesn't mean, again, that they trade him at the deadline. But they are looking for clarity with the team for sale and likely to be sold. And they want the new owner, whoever it might be, to know whether they have Juan Soto, whether they're going to keep Juan Soto or not. If they had signed him to an extension at, let's say, $440 million for 15 years, they would have felt evidently comfortable selling the team and leaving the new owner with that as an asset. Now, obviously, it did not get done. I've seen some chatter on Twitter and elsewhere about how this was not a good offer. It was a lowball offer, an insulting offer. Well, I don't know exactly how you can say that when the guarantee, the total number of dollars, would have been the largest contract ever awarded any player in baseball history. Now, the counter argument, the argument these people are making is that AAV, just over $29 million, that's not market value for Juan Soto. Well, go back a few years to Bryce Harper's free agency. He signed for $330 million, more than $100 million less than Juan Soto. And it took 13 years to get to the 330. That's what he wanted. He wanted to beat Stanton, who was at 325, and he wanted that long-term deal. Bryce Harper's AAV, 25.384 million. I don't know that anyone said he got lowballed by the Philadelphia Phillies, and he got the total guarantee. So this idea that it's not a good offer, I have a problem with that. It's almost half a billion dollars. Now, that said, Juan Soto doesn't have to take it, and he's not a stupid person for not taking it. He, in fact, might do quite better in free agency if he gets there. And it certainly looks like that is the goal. It's looked like that is the goal from the beginning. Remember, 23 years old, 
he will be a free agent entering his age 26 season. He'll be one of the youngest free agents we've ever seen. And certainly by that point, he's going to be even more accomplished. But the idea that this is a low ball and it's not a good offer, uh, I wouldn't go that far. The Bryce Harper deal was one example of getting the guarantee you want and stretching the years to make sure you could get it, even if it reduces the average annual value. I'll give you another example, much lesser contract, DJ LeMahieu. DJ LeMahieu wanted $90 million and he wanted to stay with the Yankees. The only way the Yankees could do that was not to sign him for four years, which might have been market value, or even five. No, he signed for six to get the total guarantee where he wanted. So these things are all different, but when you're offered the largest guarantee in Major League history, I have a hard time saying the Nationals lowballed him. Now, the Nationals might have known he would reject it. Okay, maybe, because Boris certainly has shown over the years he prefers his clients to establish their values on the open market. Now, another thing, in the immediate aftermath of this news coming out yesterday, a lot of people were speculating the Nationals can attach one of their expensive contracts to Soto, and that would make the deal easier to get done in some respects, or at least would get them out of a big contract. That is true. They're not going to get out of the Strasbourg contract, though, this way. Because with Strasburg, there is a full no-trade clause. He also has 10 years of major league service, five with the same team. So that's effectively a no-trade clause. It's, he's got it either way. And I cannot imagine the Nationals giving Scott Boris, who is Strasburg's agent as well, the control of the situation to effectively direct where Juan Soto would be traded. Because if Strasburg is attached to this deal and can reject the trade, then Boris effectively can reject the trade on Soto's behalf. He can control the process. I can't imagine the Nationals are going to want to do that. Now, Strasburg is signed through 2026. I would imagine they're going to be stuck with that one. The more realistic contract that could be moved, perhaps along with Soto, if the Nationals want to go in that direction, is, of course, Patrick Corbin. And Patrick Corbin signed a big deal several years back. He does not have no trade clause. He is not a 10-5 and five guy. So, yes, that was a backloaded deal, and perhaps that's the way the Nationals want to go. Maybe it'll explore deals to that effect. But you do that, it diminishes the package you get in return. And the idea I would think the Nationals have here is to hit the absolute jackpot with this unbelievable player, 23 years old, with two-plus years of control, three pennant races. You get a team's farm system for that. There's that funny tweet yesterday by Cespedes Family Barbecue showing one of the team pictures from the Futures game saying, this is the return for Soto. It was a whole team. Now, I don't know that they'll be that, but again, it's pretty interesting. And one other point I want to make. We expect, of course, the Dodgers, the Yankees, the Mets, the Padres, all of the usual suspects to engage in a pursuit of Soto. The Cubs would be another team. I'm sure I'm missing some. But I would say that even teams that are lower in revenue, Tampa Bay, for instance, could play on this player. Tampa Bay, which has a terrific farm system, could conceivably get Soto, pay him the rest of his $17.1 million salary this year, and then pay him next year as well. His salary, I would expect, would be in the $22 to $25 million range. And if you don't want to pay him in the last year, which I would expect they probably would not, okay, you can trade him again. 
So I would think there are other teams besides the usual suspects who will check in on this. Granted, his price is going up in terms of his salary, but this thing is going to be wide open and it's going to be really interesting to see how it affects the rest of the trade market and where this all goes. So that's it, Tim. That's my semi-summation of the situation. And it's absolutely fascinating, of course, and it's going to unfold over the next two weeks, two and a half weeks, and we'll see how it all plays out. You know, nobody has, or few teams have had more success dealing with Scott Boris than Mike Rizzo and the Nationals. Correct. Which makes me think what you did say about them kind of knowing you probably wouldn't take this. I feel like that's probably true because they, they know what they're up against. Feels like $500 million is a is a starting off point with Juan Soto at this point. But it's certainly going to be fascinating. We'll see if it slows down the trade deadline or speeds it up. Yes, $500 million is probably the number. But it's not just $500 million. The AAV, from what I can tell, is very important too. And Soto's going to want it to be in that 36 to $40 billion range. Now, Max Scherzer got $43 million a year, but that's only for three years. We have not seen a deal like that for 15 years. So, again, we'll see how it all plays out. And ultimately, I do believe Juan Soto will become a free agent. I don't know that he's signing an extension. As Britt pointed out in her column today, What's the number? Is 450 going to get it done? 475, 500 right now? Uh, probably not. So it's just going to be something to behold when he finally signs that deal because it's going to be for a lot of money. Yeah, resetting the market. All right, let's move on to the mailbag. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved next week, which will be uh, clicking down to the trade deadline at that point, so plenty to talk about, you can call us 646-543-7072 or email Show at gmail.com. We have some all-star questions, Ken, so we might as well start there. This one from a suffering Marlins fan who wouldn't even say his name. That's how, <laughs> how bad things have been for him in Miami. In the ever-growing list of accomplishments that Shohei Otani has racked up so far, he has the honor of being voted into the all-star game as both a DH by the fans and a pitcher by the players. Since we talk about how many all-star selections a great player has had in his career— and Otani was voted in by two different groups to the same game. Should we count this as two all-star selections, even though it's just one game? It seems only fair to honor the history we're seeing unfold before our eyes. This is a legitimate fun question. However, Shohei Otani, while he is two people on the baseball field, a pitcher and a hitter, and actually a base runner too, he is one 
person in one body. Therefore, in my view, he's one all-star. I'm not going to count him twice. It's an interesting thought from the premise of he is different. And he arguably should be counted twice because it's two different players that are getting elected, but it's still one Shohei Otani. So I'm comfortable with him getting one selection next to his name for each year. We all know who he is. We all know what he has done. And I'm going to say this again. People get on the media sometimes, the sports media, the baseball media, for making too big a deal out of Shohei Otani. I would suggest, once again, we are not making a big enough deal because what he is doing is just jaw-dropping. It's incredible. Our guys at No Dunks here at The Athletic have a new show called No Bunts. It's about baseball once a week. It's a it's a different kind of baseball show, Ken. It's more like your casual fan than, than what we do on The Athletic Baseball Show. And they had a whole discussion about how this doesn't make sense that Otani is not talked about more. And they're basketball guys, and they just don't get it because of the, the amazing thing. Tim, let me give you one stat. One stat. This is an amazing stat. Highest slugging percentage with runners in scoring position. Shohei Otani this year. That's just one. We can go on and on. Yeah. <laughs> Endless numbers to back up uh, what he is doing. All right, another All-Star question from Zach. What do you think of a yearly All-Star Legends game to go along with the All-Star weekend with Rob Manfred's legacy picks, Albert Pujols and Miguel Cabrera? I thought about how great it would be to see a whole team full of baseball legends. We already have a futures game. So what about a game showcasing the past stars of the game? with the MLB looking for ways to increase viewership for all things All-Star Weekend. I think this game could be a great opportunity for just that. And some teams do old-timers games, Ken, but there isn't an all-around one anymore. I was just going to say that, Tim, that the old-timers game that the Yankees have and the Mets are bringing back this year, and I know a few other teams, I believe, have them as well, they are quite popular. And it's a great way for fans to kind of revisit their childhoods or early adulthood their memories of these great players so i like the idea at the same time it kind of runs contrary to what baseball is doing they want to attract the younger audience and they have the older audience captivated the 50s to 70 years old whatever however you want to define it so i don't know that the commissioner's office would view this as something that they need to enhance the product of all-star week but it is an interesting idea now, the other problem is finding enough guys who can play but the mets and yankees do they find enough players who still can put on a uniform swing a bat or pitch to perform in an old timers game so i assume that if you had all 30 teams involved you could get that many but i just don't know if you put that in there over the futures game over the celebrity game and if you do an addition a Legends game, if it's just getting crowded out and it's going to be too busy a week. I don't know. I think we're stuck with the few Legends that end up playing in that celebrity game each year. We at least have that to look forward to, a little slow-pitch softball. Um, all right, back to the trade deadline we go, Ken, and this one is a voicemail. Hi, Ken. This is Nick from Portland, Oregon. In light of the Yankees acquiring Tyler Wade for a player to be named later this week, can you please explain how player to be named later deals work? Uh, did the team just ne- uh, agree to negotiate the return player at a, at a different date? Is there a pool of players the teams agreed to at the time of the deal that the acquiring team just selects later? Uh, how did the logistics of this work? Thank Actually, this is a good question because a lot of people are always confused by this, and mm-hmm. including myself, I would say, at times. 
generally speaking, the player to be named is someone that maybe you want to hold on to until the end of the minor league season for whatever reason. More times than not, it is simply because a team, the acquiring team, is looking over a list of, say, five to ten players, and they're going to scout those players and then determine out of that list that they've been given by the trading team which player or players they want. So that is the most common use of it. Now, what's interesting is, and I didn't know this until I researched it a little bit, the player be named was much more common when we had the August waiver period for trades. Remember when the non-waiver deadline was over and we had the waiver deadline, that was usually August 31st. And then because players had to clear waivers before being traded, the clubs would not want to name the players. They would want to see if that player who was in the deal cleared first, and then they would name him after the fact. So I don't know that there's a set timeline on this. I've heard six months, but I'm not exactly sure if that's true. But usually it's something like that, because let's say we have a player to be named next week in a trade. You're not going to wait until next season. You're going to wait until the off season. So that is generally how it works. But it seems that because the August waiver period is no more, that it is a less common practice or will be in the future. All right. Yeah. Real good question. Cause I think a lot of people don't understand that and they just kind of go with it. Uh, Sam says, I was looking at a few rosters of contenders and noticed the catcher position is quite a weakness on a, quite a few teams. The only problem is there's maybe six to nine catchers in all of baseball that produce at a high offensive level. I was just wondering if the concept of a catcher moving teams at the deadline and having to work with the new starting staff is something teams worry about when acquiring talent at the deadline. For example, the Mets have two to three guys if to Grom comes back and Scherzer and Bassett that are extremely hard to call games for. Fans have seen Bassett especially struggle when the Mets backup catchers call games. My question is, are teams with pitching as a strength really looking to upgrade the catcher position internally due to these roadblocks or is it something that major league teams trust their development to get right? No, it is definitely a concern. It is definitely a concern. Every trade deadline when you have a few catchers or whatever catchers become available. And it's a particular concern this deadline because one of the best players available, Wilson Contreras of the Cubs, is primarily a catcher. Now, the good news for the Cubs with Contreras is that a team that wants him has the DH spot to use him in as well. So you're not restricted to using Wilson Contreras strictly as a catcher. Now, that said, for instance, let's take the Mets staff as an example. They've got Scherzer, they've got DeGrom. They've got a lot of big stuff pitchers on that staff, guys with quality, quality, big-time movement. That is difficult to catch. Not only is that a factor, learning all of the different pitchers in the middle of a pennant race, uh, it's difficult too. So all of these things kind of conspire against the market for catchers from a trade perspective in July. Free agency is different. Free agency has generally not treated catchers well either, basically because of the physical demands of the position. But when you sign a catcher in free agency, you've got the whole spring for him to get acclimated to the staff, to the way the team goes about, run prevention, all of those things. So the question is absolutely valid. Teams definitely have greater concerns about catchers at the deadline. That said, there are some desperate teams right now for catching. It's not necessarily the ones who are performing the worst offensively. You look at Houston with Maldonado and Castro, they don't really hit, but they love the way those guys work with the pitchers, call games, everything that goes into the catching position. And then 
you look at some other teams that really do have a need, Tampa Bay, Cleveland, San Diego, maybe the Giants, if they are not convinced Joey Bart is going to be the answer, though he's looked better of late since coming back to the major leagues. So there are teams that will take that chance because it's worth taking that chance, but there's no question that adjustment period is problematic. It's difficult. And it's something that restricts the movement of catchers or at least the return that teams get for them at the deadline. Speaking of the giants, that's the next question. Hey guys, David from uh, Los Angeles and enemy territory here. Big fan. Love reading your stuff and hearing you guys talk. Uh, question about the Giants. They have really stumbled here in the first half after a pretty strong April with uh, most months going about 500 or slightly less. So this is a very interesting point for the franchise who arguably, much as I love them, might have overperformed in 2021. Can you believe it? So which direction can do you think that uh, the team should go with the upcoming trade deadline? Do they sell some of their pieces like Carlos Rodon, who's sure to be one of the best starting pitchers on the market? Or do they try and hold and see if the team can have a uh, late half resurgence? I expect that they're going to wait until the very end. And I would not be surprised to see them operate on both sides of the street, buy and sell. Now, as I sit here, Sunday evening, they are right in the thick of the wild card race. They've won four or five, six of eight. They've played a little bit better. And they are a game out of the third wild card spot. So the Phillies and Cardinals are tied for that third wild card spot. The Giants are a game behind them. That is quite attainable if they get hot and if they start playing better. Now, you might, as a fan, see them play and say, eh, I don't know if they're going to play better. Their defense is not good. They're older. They don't have range. They're going to have more injuries. Maybe this is the time to get something for Rodon, who has an opt-out, and explore some other things as well. That does make some sense, but I have a hard time believing that they're simply going to give up on the season. And if you trade Rodon, you effectively are doing that. And yet you're not probably going to sign him back, or at least you're not going to have him come back and decline the opt-out. He's going to opt-out. But at the same time, if I'm the Giants, I go for it. And I don't go for it necessarily all in, go crazy. But I do want to take my best shot. Now, getting back to Juan Soto, here's a great example. The Giants. Now, again, I just said they're not really a team that should go all in because of the way they're playing, but they should not be selling either. For Juan Soto, yes, they should go all in. Because it's not just Juan Soto for this year. It's Juan Soto next year and the year after that. So that is an exception. And the Giants, like most teams, would have to put together a monster package. But this is what I was talking about earlier in the show. He really fits for everyone. And that is what is so intriguing about his future with the Nationals, or limited future, I should say. Victor Knox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victor Knox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods.
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right. Well, we're talking big money with Soto. Here's a question about not quite that big money, but some free agency coming up. It's from Justin says, love the show. Everybody talks about Turner, Bogarts, Correa as the big free agent shortstops and deservedly so. With Dansby Swanson having a career year, what do you think his contract is going to look like this offseason? Do you think Marcus Simeon is a good comparison or do you think he's creeping up into more $200 million range? Obviously, a couple years younger than Simeon, but just wondered your overall thoughts. Well, I need to see the rest of the season because Dansby Swanson, as good a first half as he's had, has always been a streaky hitter. He had that horrible April. Then he made a mechanical adjustment, figured it out, and boom, took off like really never before. I love him as a player. He is a winning player. We've seen that. You can win a World Series with Dansby Swanson. It's been done. Now, he will be a free agent entering his age 29 season. Semyon was entering his age 31 season as a second baseman at that point. And he got seven years, $175 million. If I had to guess now, and guessing free agent numbers is not my specialty, I would say that's the range. Seven years, 175 Just because he's not quite what Semyon was. Semyon had two monster years. 2019 was one of them. He had a great year in 2019, 33 homers, 892 OPS. 2021 with the Jays at second base now, amazing year. 45 homers, 102 RBIs, and an 873 OPS. This would be, if Dansby can finish it off, really his first year at that kind of level. Now, he was at 809 OPS in the shortened 2020 season, but – this year, he's at 828. It's actually not where Semyon was. So I would think he would be kind of in that range. I don't see him as a $200 million guy. I might be wrong about that. Some team might do it. But with the competition that he's going to face, Bogarts and Correa, if they opt out and Trey Turner as a pure free agent, I don't know that he gets to 200 but he certainly is going to do really well and should do really well. He's an incredibly steady player defensively especially, and a steady presence. And a winning guy, a guy you want on your team, a lot of the qualities actually that Semyon has. So I expect him to do well. How well, I don't know. All right, next question comes from Eric. He says, I was going to ask a question about the trade deadline, my Blue Jays and Yusei Kikuchi, but instead, I want to talk more about O'Neill Cruz. This is a very intriguing and talented young baseball player. His size, his arm, his aggressiveness makes his this young man a very eye-popping player. And I want to buy his Pittsburgh jersey. My question is, and I know this question is kind of premature considering his playing time, can the Pittsburgh Pirates use this talented young man to start to build a team around, or are they going to trade him away like they have done to so many now All-Stars in the past? Well, it's certainly a fair question, considering the Pirates' conduct in recent years. But O'Neill Cruz just got to the big leagues, and he is a guy who is a rookie. He has several years of affordable control, and I mean affordable, I mean cheap 
minimum salary type <laughs> control. Three years of that. Then he hits arbitration. Three years more of control in arbitration. So the Pirates have him for six years. You would hope that in that six-year span, they're going to figure it out to some degree and start to show progress and again contend in what is still a very weak division, so to speak. Right now, there are only two teams in that division that are contending. It's St. Louis and Milwaukee. They've been that way for a while now. The Cubs are rebuilding whatever they're doing. The Reds are a mess. And then there are the Pirates headed for their fifth straight losing season, rebuilding. They have seen some things happen this year that have been exciting. They have some interesting young talent. So I would expect that Cruz would be part of that. He is what they want as part of their future, along with the catcher, Henry Davis, Cabrian Hayes, of course, and a number of others. Maybe Sawinski is part of that core, the way he has emerged. And I can name other players as well. They're not going to lose forever. At least that's not their plan. So I would buy the jersey. And then don't blame me if they trade him in two years. I mean, even if they do trade him in five years, that's a pretty good run for a jersey. I mean, I, I have some <laughs> I jerseys. So. I have some some shirts that are much older than that. Don't get me wrong, but five <laughs> years for a jersey. I mean, take take your shot, Eric. Go for it. Um, all right, great questions this week. That's going to do it uh, for us. Uh, you can get involved down the road, though. You can call us at 646-543-7072. The email's tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Now, programming note this week, uh, we are mixing up the feed a little bit because of the All-Star game out in Los Angeles. We were on schedule on Monday, but Tuesday, it'll actually be the 3-0 show with Derek Van Riper and Eno Saris and Britt. Wednesday's the roundtable as usual, but then Thursday, it'll be DVR and law they'll have the full draft recap of course the draft going on starting tonight as recording this sunday and then into monday and tuesday uh and then starkville slides to friday and that will be a hall of fame weekend preview uh as jason and doug get you ready for a big weekend in cooperstown so just a little bit of a mix up all your regular shows in a slightly different order if you want to join the athletic you can do it for $1 a month for up to six months. You can do that right now by going to theathletic.com slash baseball show. Ken, I know you're already out there in L.A. Enjoy the derby. Enjoy the game. It's always so much fun. I love the Midsummer Classic. Thank you, Tim. And I'll talk to you next week. All right. We'll talk to everybody else as well. Have a good week. Bye.